1: I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England Podcast. Episode 17, Northumbrian Collapse. In 867, an army of Danes besieged York. They had been ravaging and rampaging across eastern England for several years, and had lately set their eyes on the jewel in Northumbria's crown. The churches and monasteries of England had yielded up rich treasure, and the Grand Minster of York promised to offer them yet richer harvests. Many of them were young men with older siblings, siblings who would receive the bulk of any inheritance. As such, they had taken to the seas as the Viking are, searching for the opportunity to make their names and obtain valuables with which to begin a life back in Scandinavia or on a piece of conquered land elsewhere. In the process, they would bring centuries-old kingdoms to their knees and reshape Western Europe in ways they could never comprehend. Within the walls of York, the royal rivals Erla and Osbert stood together, their rivalries momentarily set aside in the face of this new danger. They couldn't have known that they were witnessing the end of Northumbria's time as an independent kingdom. Probably they imagined that many more glorious years awaited them once this fight was over, but it wasn't to be, and on that day, with the fall of the city, Northumbria, the kingdom of the north of England, was to collapse into oblivion.
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. plus.
1: With hindsight, it's clear to see why Northumbria fell in 867. For over a century up to that point, it had been torn apart internally by political factions and the royal office had gone from something to be revered to something to be chased and won by any means necessary. How did this happen? How did we get from the return of Northumbria's imperial ambitions under Eadbert to the end of Northumbria itself? After the reign of Chaelwolf, we enter a period of Northumbrian history not narrated by Bede. This, combined with the loss of any Northumbrian royal charters or royal annals during the Danish conquest of the 9th century, means that we have only a meagre record of what happened between 731, the kingdom's fall in 867, and ultimately its reconquest by King Athelstan in 927. That's almost 200 years that are largely mysterious to us. Consequently, I'm not going to bore you by going on at length about kings we know very little about. Rather, in this episode, I'm going to give you a broad overview of the final decades of Northumbria's existence as an independent kingdom beginning with the murder of Oswulf in 759, and ending with the victory of the Danish Great Heathen Army at York in 867. In the process, I will attempt to highlight some of the factors and influences that ultimately contributed to Northumbria's downfall. Just to give you some perspective on how tumultuous the final years of Northumbria's existence were, in the just under 110 years between 759 and 867, only one king, seems to have ruled for more than a decade, without being deposed, and successfully passed the crown on to his son. The rest of the time, Northumbrian politics was a constant back and forth of uprisings and murders, set against the backdrop of seeming economic catastrophe. An indication of the instability that beset Northumbria in its final century is the fact that we see the rise of new men to power whose ancestry is completely unknown. The powerful dynasties, like the Athelfrithings and the Laodwaldings, lost any monopoly they had on power. In their place, we see new power-hungry men using violence and subterfuge to usurp power at any cost, and this fatally destabilised the kingdom. These feuds and power grabs also demonstrate the extent to which old divisions between Benicia and Dera were beginning to reassert themselves now that any one family had lost a clear monopoly on the kingship, and it was this reassertion, I believe, that ultimately led to Northumbria's disintegration. But let's dive into the history. After the murder of Oswulf in 759, the man who succeeded him was a man by the name of Athelwald Moll. This surname may well be a reference to his father, who was probably a deiran nobleman by the name of Moll, who was given ownership of three monasteries by King Eadbert. Other than this one possible link, Athelwold's ancestry is entirely mysterious, raising the questions of whether or not he claimed descent from one of Northumbria's legendary founders at all. He certainly was a member of the deiran nobility though, regardless of what his deeper ancestry looked like, and it was this nobility which makes him a prime suspect, in the murder of Oswulf, since we are told that Oswulf was killed by his own men, and Athelwald seems to have served as a soldier for Oswulf prior to the latter's murder. Thus, it's not a far leap to suggest that Athelwald convinced his compatriots to kill the king, and then elevate him to the kingship. This seizure of power does seem to have inspired some resistance, in 761, the anonymous monk, who continued beat ecclesiastical history as a chronicle, recorded the death of one Oswina. In a later source, the Anglo-Saxon chronicle produced in Wessex in the 9th century, this Oswina is referred to as an Atheling, the usual Old English term for a prince, and explains that he was killed during a battle with Athelwald. From this, it is speculated that this Oswina was another son of Eadbert, who was attempting to overthrow the usurper that had murdered his brother. The attempt was a failure, though, and Oswina died. Despite this resistance, it would be incorrect to suggest that there was some kind of internal breakdown between Eadbert's reign, Oswulf's reign, and Atherwald's reign. In fact, some institutional continuity between Atherwald and Eadbert is suggested by the formers continuing to mint coins, an endeavour that suggests some survival of royal bureaucracy. However, Athelwald was unable to quell discontent, since in 765, the nobles and clergy of Northumbria gathered at a place called Pikanhela, exactly where this was is unknown, where they deposed Athelwald and forced him to become a monk. In his place, they elevated Ulred, who did claim descent from Ida, the legendary founder of Benicia. In 768, he attempted to solidify his right to rule by marrying Ozyvoo daughter of the murdered King Oswald, thus giving him a direct marriage link to Eidbert. Ulred also seems to have gone above and beyond to try and act as a king was supposed to do. He, like Athelwald, continued to mint coins, and he even patronised missionary activity in Saxony in 767 and 770. He also attempted to capitalise on the fame of the school at York, where Alcuin was based, which attracted many Frankish intellectuals by sending diplomatic envoys to Francia to establish friendship with Charlemagne. This was the first time a Northumbrian king made such explicit overtures to the king of the Franks. However, in these letters, he seems to allude to disturbances in Northumbria, which would soon blossom into outright rebellion. In 774, Ulred was forcibly deposed and driven into exile among the Picts. Given his claim of descent from Ida, Olred's power base was probably mainly in Bernicia around Bamburgh. His expulsion in 774 occurred while he was in York, and he was replaced by the son of Athelwald, Mole, Ethelred, a man with a solid Daeran roots. Thus the disintegration of Lothumbria seems in no small part to have been a rebellion against the domination of Dara by Benicia, a domination that had existed since the time of Oswald. Ethelred, if you'll remember from last week's episode, was not exactly fondly remembered by some sections of the Northumbrian intelligentsia, specifically Alcuin. He, in fact, is remembered as something of a tyrant. In 778, he ordered that three aldermen be put to death, an act that roused dissension against him, which briefly saw a return to power of the Bernicians. In 779, in response to this murder, he was deposed by Alfwald, grandson of Eadbert, who was murdered himself very soon after, by a conspiracy of nobles in 788. His sons then fled and took refuge at St. Peter's Church in York, and Alfwald was succeeded by his first cousin and son of King Ulred, named Osred, who ruled for less than a year before Ethelred successfully deposed him and regained the throne in 790. I did warn you that this was going to be a lot of information and quite complicated. After regaining the throne, Ethelred continued his violent tendencies, and continued to attempt to remove all opposition. In 791, he had Ulfwald's sons dragged out of the church and killed. The following year, he successfully put down an attempted coup led by Osred, who returned from exile, and he also tried to kill an Eadwulf, probably the relative of the Eadwina who had been killed by Eadbert in 740 but this one murder attempt was unsuccessful, and it was this one that would come back to haunt Ethelred. All these violent tendencies seem to suggest that Ethelred was acutely aware that he had a somewhat unreliable support base. To counter this, in the second half of his reign, we see him attempting to foster foreign alliances, and in this he actually wasn't entirely unsuccessful. In 792, he married Alf Fled, the daughter of King Offa of Mercia, and it was also around this time that he began courting the friendship of Charlemagne. Despite Alcuin's presence in Charlemagne's court, and you'll recall that Alcuin detested Ethelred, Charlemagne seems to have been quite receptive, even sending envoys and gifts to the Northumbrian king in either 795 or 796. However, these did not reach Ethelred in time, since he was murdered in 796, and upon hearing this news, Charlemagne recalled all his gifts, and damned the Northumbrians as worse than pagans for killing their rightful lord. So, he wasn't exactly thrilled about the news. Ethelred's reign is also important, for something that happened in the year 793. In that year, Scandinavian raiders attacked Lindisfarne. If you'll recall... Alcuin claimed that this raid was divine revenge on Ethelred for his cruelty, and on the Northumbrian people more generally for their sinfulness. Regardless of if we believe that, this event marks the conventional beginning of the Viking Age. While there is evidence that Norsemen had some commerce with the Picts of Orkney and Shetland, and may well have engaged in Viking activity there prior to 793, it is the attack on Lindisfarne that is the first recorded Viking raid and although those alive at the time didn't realize it it heralded the advent of a new threat that would destabilize much of western europe for centuries to come but back to politics after ethelred's death in 796 one of his friends by the name of osbald became king but he was such a hateful man that he was exiled after only 27 days upon the throne being vacated yet again Eardwulf, the man that Æthelred had unsuccessfully attempted to kill, became king in 796. Eardwulf's family had long been a pain in the neck for the Northumbrian rulers. They had attempted to overthrow both the Athelfrithings and the Laodwaldings, but under Eardwulf, their ambitions would finally be achieved. They also managed to establish a fairly decent grip on power, Eerdwulf reigned despite a brief period of exile in 806-808, from 796-810. to Despite being a apparently fairly successful king, Eerdwulf also was not a very moral one. He was particularly known for being an adulterer, a fact that earned him the enmity of both Alcuin and Ehenwald Archbishop of York. But despite this, his grip on power was strong and his son Aonred was the one exception I mentioned earlier, who reigned for over a decade without being deposed, and who successfully passed the crown onto his son. It's really a shame then that we know so little about Aonred, since the longevity of his reign, 810-850, to suggests that he was an immensely powerful king who was able to maintain the loyalty of his followers and suppress any revolts, as well as now fight off the Vikings. Yet, so little documentary evidence survives from the early 9th century that we really don't know anything about the events or politics of his reign. It's all speculative and we have to build the image we have from archaeology. And the image that we get from archaeology is that despite Aeon Red's apparent success, Northumbria was still in the grip of extreme hardship. This can be seen particularly in the signs of economic hardship that we find from the nine hundred seventies to eight fifty five. It begins under Ethelred when we see a new kind of coin emerging in Northumbria. It's called a sticker S T Y C A, and it seems to have been meant to replace the older Sheata. They were smaller and they contained significantly less silver. Over the period their silver content continued to decline until finally in the 830s, silver was replaced entirely by brass. The reason for this decline in the availability of silver is unclear. The most obvious explanation is that Viking activity disrupted the ability to import silver from Francia. However, some evidence suggests that this decline was to some extent limited to Northumbria, since south of the Humber, silver remained plentiful, and kings continued to mint shaetas modelled on the Franks silver pennies. It has thus been suggested that the internal instability of Northumbria meant that they were no longer able to extort tribute from their neighbours, which would have otherwise replenished their stocks of silver. The situation declined throughout the early 800s, as hyperinflation seems to have gathered steam. The production of stickers skyrocketed after that time, and many bear signs of being made by inexperienced hands, all of which indicate that the mechanisms of production were breaking down, and the coins were becoming basically worthless. Thus, the archaeological evidence indicates that Northumbria at this time was undergoing extreme economic collapse, while the rest of England was apparently doing relatively okay. This collapse must have only intensified internal feuding between powerful rivals, Despite this economic turmoil though, Ehrenred must have been a powerful ruler, the likes of which Northumbria hadn't seen for some time. His reign was also the last period of stability the Northumbrians would experience for many years. The length of his reign remains an issue of some uncertainty, again a problem stemming from just the complete lack of any real written evidence from this period. In later medieval chronicles, it's said that he died around 841, but recent discoveries of stickers in his name that date stylistically to around 850 suggest that he reigned until at least that year, which, given the complete chaos that was the latter stages of Northumbrian history, is certainly a remarkable achievement. His son, Ethelred was unable to continue his father's success, though, and was deposed in about 858. He regained the throne soon after, and reigned until around 862, this was only possible because the usurper, Radwolf, died fighting Viking raiders. This, it coincidentally, marks the first point when Vikings unquestionably altered the course of Northumbrian politics, a trend that would continue to escalate in the kingdom's final half-decade of independence. In these last five years, the now-established pattern of rebellion and violence continued. Ethelred's successor, Osbert, was deposed by an upstart noble named Erla, The record of later historians is not kind to Erla. He was, according to them, a tyrant who stole church lands and made liberal use of violence to keep people in line. Bad, yes, but not really all that unusual if we think about the other kings of Northumbria at this point. Probably Erla would have been deposed or murdered like other kings if it wasn't for the rising threat of the Norse. At the same time, as he was seizing power, Norse incursions were becoming increasingly disruptive, thanks in part to the charismatic leadership of a Dane named Ragnar Lothbrok. Ella, although very little is known about his reign, is recorded in Norse sagas as the king who finally captured Ragnar and put him to death by having him thrown into a pit of snakes. According to the saga The Tale of Ragnar's Sons, It was to avenge the death of Ragnar that the great heathen army was mustered and invaded England. They captured Erla before putting him to death by means of the blood eagle. This was a means of human sacrifice, described in various Norse sagas and skaldic poetry, in which the victim was forced to lie prone on an altar before their ribs were cut from their spinal cord. The officiant would then pull the lungs out through the holes in the back to make a pair of gruesome wings. There is a very long debate among Old Norse scholars as to whether this was a real practice or whether it was purely fictional. The evidence is inconclusive. What is certain, though, is that Aeola was not blood-eagled, since the story is certainly made up for the sagas. In fact, the whole story of the invasion of England being begun in revenge for the death of Ragnar is complete fiction. The Great Heathen Army, a term deriving from the entry of 865 in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, did not initially seek to invade Northumbria. In fact, the army first landed in East Anglia, where the king bought them off in return for peace. They then marched north in 866. Their plan seems to have been basically a form of extortion. They would menace a king and demand payment in return for peace. If the king didn't pay, they would attack and ravage the kingdom. The East Anglian king paid. Aella did not. In response, they attacked York in 867. Both Erla and Osbert fought to defend the city, but both were killed in the process. The Northumbrians then sued for peace. In response, the Norse partitioned Northumbria with the river Tyne as the dividing line. South of the Tyne was probably under direct control of the invaders. North of the Tyne, they established a puppet king named Edgbert, who probably was little more than a glorified tax collector. After this, Northumbria as an independent kingdom ceased to exist, and it would not be ruled by the English again until its reconquest by Athelstan in 927. By then, the nobility who had shaped and defined the kingdom would be long gone, and the old loyalties to Benicia and Deira had vanished. In a sense, the Northumbria that was reconquered in 927 was not the same kingdom as the one that fell in 867. The Danes settled, and created a hybrid Anglo-Scandinavian culture, And while the churches and towns survived throughout the period, the records of the Old Kingdom were destroyed. York, the biggest city in the kingdom, was renamed from the Old English Eovorwick to the Old Norse Jorvik. And with that, a thread of continuity that stretched from the Roman occupation through to 867 was lost. All that remained when Athelstan marched into York in 927 was a memory.
0: Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.
1: York had fallen. Despite all the prayers of the clergy, the heathens had taken the city. Erla and Osbert were dead their bodies lost among the countless fallen, all rendered anonymous by the clinging blood and dirt. From the distance, the core of crows rang exultant over the battlefield, rousing old poetic associations in the minds of those who heard them. Ravens love war. They follow it. In the city, the Danes rampaged, stripping all the gold and jewels they could find. Women, children and men unable to fight cowered in hiding. All hope had fled. Had they caused this? Had the feuding of their lords and the sinfulness of the people brought this down upon them? There would be time later to ponder such things. Now all that mattered was survival. They would find more kings, just like they always had. But what if the Danes returned and killed them too? This was something new, a new factor. At least Picts and Mercians were Christian. What would these heathens do when they satisfied their lust for gold? With the walls of York fell all the old certainties, the old status quo, and none of them could tell what would rise from the ashes. In a way, Northumbria had always been a somewhat artificial creation, but it was an artificial creation which took on a life of its own and became an undisputed fact. While Bede talked expansively about a Northumbrian kingdom and a Northumbrian people, his view is that of a cloistered monk who was probably not always aware of the tensions lurking beneath the surface. Northumbria had begun as two kingdoms, Benicia and Dera, and its union always involved the domination of one of those kingdoms over the other. This domination led to rivalry between the kingdom's respective nobilities, especially the Deirans, since union tended to favour the Benicians. And this rivalry ultimately weakened Northumbria when the ruling families lost their dynamism. Faction and feud were the result. But, and this is why I say Northumbria was somewhat artificial, even during the lowest points of the kingdom, none of the parties involved seemed to have suggested a return to the two independent kingdoms. Probably this is because doing so would require the rulers of each kingdom to give up their claims to power over the other, something no one with a hunger for power would do. Equally, the church was organised based on the existence of a single kingdom, and since the nobility of both kingdoms relied on the church for legitimacy, they couldn't countenance a redivision of the kingdom, because the church wouldn't countenance it. Yet, with the idea of Northumbria becoming an accepted norm, so too were the seeds of its destruction sowed. Since the nobility could be divided along the lines of the old kingdoms, and one always chafed under the yoke of the other, a situation which would inevitably breed instability. The collapse of Northumbria, then, seems to have been the result of a power vacuum, leading to the revival of old tensions, which had been successfully kept in check by strong kings for many decades. The tensions led to factionalism and feuding, which fundamentally weakened the kingdom, leading to economic and military collapse. In this view, Northumbria seems to bear similarities to the state of Roman Britain as described by Stuart Laycock, In his book, Laycock proposed a new paradigm in which Roman Britain was a failed state, as typified by intense divisions between the people, superseding a single communal vision which undermined the effectiveness of the established government. The term failed state is problematic, since it raises questions of what a state is, and if Northumbria can be called a state – but the recognition offered by Laycock of the effects of power vacuums and the presence of older loyalties which supersede bonds of union when they no longer seem beneficial does seem to fit the course of the fall of Northumbria well. Whether the fall has anything to teach us today, well, I don't know. I'll leave that one up to you. But there is certainly something very human about the story, and the way it highlights human fallibility. In the end, maybe that's the real benefit of studying history. It teaches us more about what it is to be human, and it demonstrates that, while in many ways our ideals change across generations, our weaknesses often remain constant. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I've tried to obviously do something a bit different this episode with sound effects and just things to try and make it a bit easier to listen to so that it's it's not just me talking at you for however long an episode usually is. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm going to try and do more stuff like this in the future, I think. Unless, of course, you really hate it. In which case, just say and I will not do this again. Obviously, for right now, we're done with Northumbria. And I've been thinking a lot about how to where to go from here with the podcast. And my initial plan when I started out was to begin, was to basically follow the the heptarchy, the seven kingdoms that made up Anglo-Saxon England, the main kingdoms that made up Anglo-Saxon England in medieval history. Upon thinking about it more, I, I no longer think that's the right way to go. So instead, I'm going to begin by focusing on really the three big kingdoms, the ones that's exerted a major influence on the history of all the other smaller kingdoms so that's obviously Northumbria next prob next will be Mercia and then after that Wessex then there'll be sort of a yeah, some shorter episodes dealing with things like Kent and Essex and Sussex and, and East Anglia um, ones they're a lot smaller and we don't really know that much about and which really exist in the shadow of the three larger kingdoms throughout most of their history. So, after this, I'm going to start with Mercia, which is a topic I've been looking forward to from the beginning, because obviously I'm, I'm from Birmingham, I'm from Mercia, so it's, it's a topic I'm very, very familiar with. Um, I hope you'll be here for that. If you are, and if you've enjoyed everything I've done so far, I'd like to request that you leave a like, a rating, a, subs- a subscription, a review, um, whatever platform you use, whatever they offer. I've also, obviously we have a Facebook page for Anglo-Saxon England podcasts, so if you want to keep up to date with things you can leave a like there. I've also started uploading these, uh, these episodes to YouTube, so that if that's a way that you would prefer to consume your podcasts or just want to have something on in the background, that's also an option for you. And I'm a little embarrassed to ask about this, but I've also recently launched a Patreon. And the reason is that I love this period of history and I love sharing it with people. And when I was in university doing my masters phd i i realized that there's a real appetite out there for something that makes this period of history more accessible and as a long time fan of podcasts i decided to well i basically thought why why can't that be me why can't i do that and so i'm very committed to keeping this free and keeping it open to people and keeping it available to as many people want to listen who want to listen to it but obviously there are costs that come along with preparing something like this. And that's why I've started the Patreon, so that people who are interested and who think that this is worthwhile and who want a bit of you know, a bit of extra content, maybe some earlier access to episodes. Um, I'm also planning to do some patron exclusive, sort of thematic episodes that they can patrons can basically request the topic of. I'm 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 do I'm offering all of this so that we can keep this going, we can you know, get a completely free, in-depth podcast history of Anglo-Saxon England out there for anybody who wants to consume it. So, if you're willing, if you're able to subscribe on Patreon, you get some extra stuff in return, I would be extremely grateful for that. But that's my pitch over. I hope you I don't find it too egregious. For now, I will leave you and head off to write some good stuff about Mercia that will be here very soon for you. So, thank you for listening. This has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, and once again, I've been your host, Tom Kearns.